0: Welcome to Sights and Sounds, a series of podcasts presented by the Gotham Center for New York City History for Open House New York Weekend. In this episode, Bonnie Yokelson talks about the Alice Austin House on Staten Island. This charming little Victorian cottage with a spectacular panoramic view of New York's harbor was the lifelong home of, yes, you guessed it, Alice Austin, a pioneering photographer of the Gilded Age. It would most likely have been destroyed for harborside luxury condos if a handful of writers, rediscovering female and lesbian icons of American history, had not learned of Austin's existence in the 1970s. That group arranged for the very first exhibition of her work and, after several publications and films, established her posthumously as one of the great photographers of the Gilded Age. Jokelson, a former museum curator who has published on some of those figures, including Alfred Stieglitz and Jakob Ries, is writing a book on Austin's life and photography and shares that early research with us here. For more podcasts like this, for more Gotham Center programming, visit us at gothamcenter.org and sign up to our mailing list. Thanks for listening.
1: Take the first exit after crossing the Verrazano Bridge into Staten Island, or bike a half hour south of the ferry terminal in St. George, and you'll find your way to a narrow beachfront in the neighborhood of Clifton. There, at the end of a little footpath, you'll see the Alice Austin House, a charming Victorian cottage on an acre of harbor-front property. Have a seat on the front porch and take in the sweeping panorama. Manhattan skyline to your left, broken waterfront straight ahead, the Verrazzano on your right, and everywhere in between, ships, barges, and tugboats crisscrossing the waters. It was this same view that inspired a trading merchant named John Haggerty Austin, to buy the property in 1844, 54 years before the five boroughs consolidated and 120 years before any permanent structure connected Staten Island to the rest of New York City. Austin enlarged and renovated the old farmhouse on the property, adding the fanciful Victorian Gothic woodwork and the picturesque paths and plantings surrounding the home. He aptly called it clear comfort. It was here that John's granddaughter, Alice, a prolific amateur photographer, was born in 1866 and died 86 years later in 1952. Don't be embarrassed if you don't know her name. Alice Austin photographed primarily for her own satisfaction. Supported by family wealth until the 1929 stock market crash, she lived in dire poverty during the depression eventually mortgaging her home and selling her family valuables for food and fuel. In 1945, when she was forced to leave Clear Comfort, she donated her photographs and family papers to a historic Richmond town. Only in 1951, the year before she died, were her images and her story introduced to the public in Life magazine. In the 1960s and 1970s, feminists recovering the lives of notable women began to explore Alice's photographs, and architectural preservationists helped save her home from demolition. Since then, a growing audience has been drawn to Austin because of her 50-year partnership with Gertrude Tate. In 2017, the Austin house was declared an LGBTQ historic site. I'm working on a book about Austin's photographs, and it's been one of the pleasures of my research to spend time at Clear Comfort, which has a small but important archive, and at Historic Richmond Town, which preserves more than 7,000 of Austin's negatives and vintage prints. I first encountered these images in 2001 when I helped prepare a new interpretive plan for the Austin House. Five years later, I also briefly advised Maxine Friedman. The senior curator at Historic Richmond Town, on an ambitious preservation project of the Austin collection. Since then, I've written books and curated exhibitions on the New York City photographs of Alfred Stieglitz, a pioneer of modern art, and Jacob Rees, a pioneer social reformer. Both of these men were Austin's contemporaries, and like her, amateur photographers. But if Austin is far less known and had artistic goals and politics that could not have been more different, she is nonetheless the third in my own pantheon of early modern New York photographers. Let's step back a moment first, though, to the early 1800s. Staten Island, like most of the outer boroughs and upper Manhattan, was mostly farmland. By the 1830s, when the city's population was exploding, stock companies formed to purchase farms on Staten Island with the idea of making it New York's first suburban retreat. It was, after all, just a 30-minute commute by ferry from Wall Street, the city's central business district. Then the Panic of 1837 initiated a nearly decade-long recession that dashed investors' hopes. But the dream of transforming Staten Island into a getaway of villages, resort hotels, cottages, and grand estates had taken hold. Among the first wave of Manhattanites to move to the island was John Austin, who co-owned a successful auction house on William Street. At first, he spent several summers on the island and lured various family members to buy property there, too. After the tragic loss of two sons to lung disease, he and his wife, Elizabeth Townsend Austin, moved there full-time in the hope of raising their family in a healthier environment. Among their immediate neighbors was Cornelius Vanderbilt, born on the island, who owned a growing shipping business but was not yet a railroad tycoon. Despite her privileged background, Alice's beginnings were inauspicious. In 1863, her mother, Alice Cornell Austin, married an Englishman named Edward Munn and they rented a cottage near her parents' home. Shortly before, or soon after, their daughter Elizabeth Alice was born, Edmund abandoned the family, never to return. Mother and child dropped the surname Munn and moved to clear comfort, where the child, who went by Alice, was brought up by her extended family. Her grandparents, her mother, her Aunt Min, Min's husband, Oswald Muller, a Danish sea captain, and her uncle Peter, who became a professor of chemistry at Rutgers University in New Jersey. The household also included two or three servants who, in addition to cleaning and cooking, were responsible for taking care of the garden and the family's menagerie of cats and dogs. Uncles Oswald and Peter, both amateur photographers, introduced Alice to their hobby, going so far as to build her a dark room in a closet on the second floor of the house, which is still there. In the 1880s, amateur photography was a popular pastime for those with enough time and money to pursue it, and several of Alice's friends tried their hand at it. But for her, it would prove to be far more than a passing fancy. The earliest photographs we have date from 1884, when she was just 18. Early photography was not like today's easy fare. It required mastering camera mechanics and enough chemistry to develop and print negatives. Moreover, to take photographs indoors, Alice had to use flash powder—combustible chemicals that exploded into a burst of light when ignited. Alice took naturally to it and, over time, increased her arsenal to include cameras of six different sizes, from a pocket-sized Kodak to a tripod-mounted field camera with 8 by 10 inch glass plate negatives. A very pretty and fashionable young woman, she enjoyed taking self-portraits and often joined her friends in group portraits. Her remote shutter release sometimes visible. With her head under a focusing cloth, Alice would compose these portraits in the viewing glass at the back of her camera, move into the scene, and squeeze a rubber bulb that pushed air through a thin tube to open the shutter. Still, Alice did not join any of the many amateur photographic societies in the New York area, nor was she interested in pictorial photography a style intended to imitate the compositions and soft-focused effects of painting and drawing. Instead, she aimed for clear definition of form and balanced composition. Her photographs of the exterior of clear comfort, which make for excellent postcards today, lead the eye from the rough-hewn, Adirondack-style gate at the foot of Highland Boulevard, upward along winding paths toward the house with its ragged roofline, and lush wisteria covering the supports of the front porch. The gate, destroyed by Hurricane Sandy, was recently rebuilt by the Parks Department. They also portray the profusion of souvenirs her grandfather and seafaring uncle brought back from their travels to Europe and Asia. Porcelain, brass, bamboo, and painted fans, as well as old Dutch tiles, family oil paintings, and other heirlooms. While the house has lost almost all of its original furnishings, Alice's photographs, which are featured in the new introductory exhibit at the house, help visitors conjure up the Gilded Age Eden that was the Austin home. A large selection of Austin's photographs can be found on the Historic Richmond Town online catalog database. You can also find my postings on Instagram, which I recently started for fun, at Alice Austin Photos. During Alice's lifetime, the growth of commerce and industry on Staten Island led to its demise as a refuge for Manhattan's elite. Commercial development and the growth of the railroads after the Civil War led New York's power brokers to abandon Staten Island in favor of larger and more private estates on Long Island and in Westchester County, farther away from the city. Meanwhile, the Austins watched as a commercial pier, an immigration station, and of Wrigley's chewing gum factory all rose on the waterfront near their property. Alice's photographs barely hint at these structures, which are all within walking distance of the house. But when Alice was in her late teens and early 20s, such changes mattered little to her. Her life was a social whirl of sporting events, dances, theatrical performances, day trips, and vacations, which she later referred to as the Larky life. Photography became an integral part of her world and her social persona. She commandeered her family and friends to pose for her and gave out photographs as souvenirs, a more gracious way to say thank you than a simple written note. At times, she even created whole photo albums as gifts to commemorate clear comfort or special excursions. Staten Island in the 1880s and 90s, with its extensive shoreline, still mostly pastoral landscape and wealthy residents, was a sportsman paradise of clubs for cricket, tennis, golf, boating, and swimming. It was also the era of the so-called new woman, which afforded single women of means, more freedom of movement, and physical agency than in times past. On Staten Island, women's athletics thrived, and Alice was as ambitious and accomplished an athlete as she was a photographer. Her photographs of friends at play offer a veritable catalog of the era's athletic fashions, which for women also meant less confining garments. Especially notable in this regard is Bicycling for Ladies, a book written by Violet Ward and illustrated with sketches based on Alice's photographs. The so-called safety bicycle with pneumatic rubber tires was as much a fad in the 1890s as was photography, and indeed many people combined the two by taking cameras on bicycle excursions. In 1895, Violet and Alice co-founded the Staten Island Bicycling Club, and the following year they collaborated on the book, which instructed women on what to wear, how to ride, and even how to repair a bicycle. Among Alice's friends, sports were intimately linked to the serious business of mating. The Clifton Boating House and the Staten Island Cricket and Baseball Club, where Alice was a member, regularly sponsored dances and performances for this purpose. Her scrapbooks are filled with announcements of these events and dance cards filled out with the names of her partners. The newspaper clippings she saved report on tennis and sailing competitions, friends' engagements, and weddings. But if she was an active participant in this scene, Alice could also be a wicked critic. Among her most celebrated photographs are a handful that lampoon the gender roles and dating rituals of the day. In one, Alice and her friends are dressed in men's clothes, complete with false mustaches. In another, she and her friend are dressed in undergarments with their hair unbound, wearing face masks, and posing brazenly with fake cigarettes. Because Alice never married, and because of her subsequent partnership with Gertrude Tate, some consider these playful, homoerotic scenes as coded lesbian messages. But this type of play, and even this genre of photograph, was fairly conventional, and would not have been considered particularly subversive Alice's time. Years later, she explained that she took these photographs for the fun of it, and I'm inclined to take her at her word. As the years of her larky life waned, and many of her friends married and had children, Alice began photographing outside the safe cocoon of her social set. The height of this activity came in 1896, when she embarked on two projects of special note, one commissioned by a neighbor and the other her own invention. The first was for New York's quarantine station, just south of Clear Comfort, where thousands of immigrants were inspected on their way to the newly opened federal entry station at Ellis Island, In 1896, Alva Doty, the health officer of the Port of New York, who lived at the quarantine station, asked Austin to record its operations. Immigrants and crew suspected of carrying infectious disease were sent to Hoffman and Swinburne Islands, which lie off Staten Island's eastern shore. In her photographs of the islands, immigrants are seen from afar, perhaps because of fear of contagion. But Alice loved the assignment and returned to the islands over several years. She was especially interested in the sterilization equipment and laboratories, perhaps not surprisingly, given her love of modern machines like the camera and the bicycle. That same year, in 1896, she also produced The Street Types of New York, a portfolio of 12 photographs depicting tradesmen in Manhattan. The project grew out of work she had done photographing Manhattan a few years earlier. At first she chose standard tourist sites like Central Park and Grace Church, but soon turned her attention to immigrant neighborhoods like the Lower East Side. In the earliest of these images, she tried to capture the lively street spectacle of vendors and pushcarts, but soon she settled on a more orderly composition in which a single tradesman or a small group posed for her camera in an empty streetscape. These portraits feature traditional pre-industrial workers like organ grinders and peddlers, as well as modern laborers, such as bicycle messengers and postmen. From 70 street-type negatives, Alice ultimately settled on 12 prints for the portfolio, each mounted on card stock and placed within decorative covers, much like a coffee table book today. Here it's worth pausing a moment to appreciate how these two projects enabled Alice to step beyond the social expectations of her gender and class. Staten Island residents had lobbied hard for the removal of potentially dangerous immigrants from their community, yet Alice seized the opportunity to frequent the quarantine islands and delighted in the work. It's perhaps not too much of a stretch to consider her a precursor of Margaret Bourke-White, who photographed the workings of Cleveland's steel mills in the 1920s. Bork White's dramatic images drew the attention of Henry Luce, the powerful publisher of Time and Fortune magazines, who launched Bork White's meteoric career as a photojournalist. It was not only her pictures that captured Luce's imagination, but the specter of a pretty young woman taking physical risks to photograph a man's world And there is something of this in Alice's quarantine pictures as well. In photographing working class immigrants on the streets of New York, Alice defied another set of expectations. Perhaps because she was long used to corralling friends and family for her portraits, she was able somehow to convince total strangers, who probably had a poor command of English, to oblige her. But how did she bridge the social chasm between herself and these street workers? Alice was used to shopping in Manhattan, so she had no fear of crowds. But the slums of the Lower East Side was another matter. And although she could not have gone there alone, she would have needed help carrying 30-some pounds of equipment. What did a street sweeper or ragpicker make of a well-dressed, well-to-do young woman with a camera? Might their curiosity have worked to her advantage? Might she have paid them to pose? Perhaps both. We don't know. Whatever the case, these two projects marked a turning point in her photographic life. She copyrighted 37 of the quarantine photographs, some of which were published and exhibited by the Port of New York, and 32 of the New York Street types, although there was no evidence of her marketing the portfolio. If she was thinking about becoming a professional photographer, she was not alone. In the mid-1890s, many women amateurs were turning their expensive hobby into a career. Among those best known today are Gertrude Kasebier, a trained painter who ran a fashionable studio on Fifth Avenue, and Frances Benjamin Johnston, who parlayed her family's friendships with political power brokers into a celebrity portrait business in Washington, DC. But ultimately, Alice did not take the plunge. A letter from her archive might explain why. Adolf Wittemann, a neighbor and the man who printed Street Types, asked her in early 1897 if she would represent his company by selling his stock of postcards and guidebooks in the fashionable resort town of St. Augustine, Florida. Wittemann, who clearly saw talent and thought Alice might be an especially effective sales representative, was offering her an opportunity to learn the trade. Alice was not interested, and likewise ignored offers from friends to pay for her prints, perhaps feeling that commerce was beneath her. She saved Wittemann's letter, though, which suggests at least that she gave some thought to the idea of making a career out of her pastime, like Hasebeer, Johnston, and many other women of her generation. Withdrawing from these projects, She instead pursued her normal routine of social events, athletics, and travel, often taking her camera along. Although no letters or diaries by Alice survive, a cache of letters to Alice shed light on her romantic attachments during the 1890s. There were several suitors, and one seems to have been serious. Alice met Henry Gilman in 1889 in New Brunswick while visiting her Uncle Peter. He worked in Manhattan, but visited her on Staten Island often, and his letters reveal a candor beyond the superficial repartee of other men seeking to impress her. But in 1893, Gilman died suddenly, perhaps of suicide. Five years later, Alice seems to have had a love affair with a woman, Daisy Elliott, a Brooklynite, nine years her senior, who managed an exclusive women's gymnasium in Manhattan. It was Daisy who posed for the illustration, of Violet Ward's book, Bicycling for Ladies. And it may be that Alice's relationship with Daisy helped her better understand her romantic feelings for women, thus setting the stage for her partnership with Gertrude Tate. Gertrude was a kindergarten teacher and dancing instructor who lived in Brooklyn with her widowed mother and sister. In 1899, when Alice was 33 and Gertrude 28, Both women joined a group of friends at a Catskill resort where Alice produced several small photo albums to commemorate the vacation, inscribing one to Gertrude. Thereafter, the two socialized regularly, dining at the Colony Club and attending the Metropolitan Opera on Saturdays. Between 1903 and 1912, they traveled frequently to Europe, transporting Austin's camera equipment in a steamer trunk. In 1914, Alice helped establish the Staten Island Garden Club and the Staten Island Antiquarian Society at the 17th century Perrine House, where for several years she and Tate ran a tea room to help fund the fledgling organization. Finally, in 1917, Gertrude left Brooklyn and moved to Clear Comfort, where she lived with Alice for 28 years. With some notable exceptions, Alice's photographs from this period reflect an unremarkable but contented domestic routine. Although there was no written testimony by Alice or Gertrude about their relationship, they were clearly a devoted couple, which does not mean, however, that they were lesbians in the modern sense of the word. In their day, well-to-do women remained unmarried for a variety of reasons, often to care for elderly family members, and relationships between women who lived together were referred to as romantic friendships, or Boston marriages, language that wholly sidestepped the matter of sex and allowed for women to live together without challenging the norms of heterosexual marriage. Alice had lived at clear comfort since her grandfather's death in 1894 with her grandmother, mother, and Aunt Min. In 1919, two years after Gertrude joined the women, Alice inherited the property. But 10 years later, disaster struck. The stock market crash of 1929 wiped out her remaining inheritance, and for 15 years, Alice and Gertrude struggled to hold on. Gertrude ran the Clear Comfort Tea Room, and although in her 70s, she offered dancing classes at several Staten Island venues, Alice, 63 years old at the time of the crash, was not equipped to monetize her photographic talent or her archive. In 1941, she sold her most valuable possessions at auction, and three years later, the bank foreclosed on the house and sold it to an Italian tavern owner. Although the new owner allowed the women to live there, damage from a hurricane and Alice's severe arthritis rendered the situation hopeless. In 1945, the pair left and moved to an apartment But by 1949, Gertrude could no longer care for Alice. Gertrude moved to Queens to live with her sister's family, and Alice, ill and with no means of support, moved to the Staten Island poorhouse. Happily, though, her life ended on a brighter note. In 1950, Oliver Jensen, a magazine editor, discovered Alice's photographs while researching a pictorial history of American women When he learned from the archivist at historic Richmond Town that Alice was still alive, he visited her in the poorhouse and making modern prints from her negatives helped organize the first exhibition of her work, which she attended in a wheelchair. Publicizing her story in several magazine articles, Jensen raised enough money through the sale of her prints to rescue Alice from poverty in her final days. Jensen's 1952 book, The Revolt of American Women, began with a selection of her photographs. Jensen was sufficiently taken with Alice to write a biography of her and secure a publisher. Unfortunately, negotiations broke down with the publisher and historic Richmond Town over use of her photographs, and the project was shelved. Austin's legacy was revived 20 years later during feminism's second wave. After Jensen's book appeared in paperback in 1971, PBS aired a documentary produced by Stuart Hirsch in 1975 called Alice's World. The following year, Anne Novotny published a monograph of the same name with Jensen's Blessing. In her book, Novotny mentioned Alice and Gertrude's relationship, although she did not dwell on it. But the following year, she wrote an article for Heresies, a feminist journal on art and politics, describing Gertrude as the lover who was to share Alice's life er and her enthusiasms for fifty years. Thus was born Austin's official and underground identities. In these early days of the gay rights movement, when many lesbians remained closeted, Austin too became closeted. As president of the Friends of the Alice Austin House, Novotny also worked tirelessly to establish clear comfort as a public museum. Tragically, Novotny died in 1982 at the age of 46, only three years before that goal was met. If she had lived to direct the museum, she might also have incorporated the ostentate relationship into its story. Instead, her 1976 book, which downplayed the relationship, became gospel for staff and supporters. And in the 1990s, lesbian activists staged protests to bring that aspect of Alice's life into the open. In recent years, as cultural attitudes have evolved, the house has embraced Gertrude as an important part of Alice's story. But if this evolution is certainly a cause for celebration, the recent focus on Alice as lesbian pioneer and feminist icon has obscured the conservative side of her character Alice loved athletics, fashion, new technologies, and women, but she clung to her family's privilege. She took great pride in her ancestry, was staunchly Republican, and shunned the immigrant families that encroached upon her neighborhood. And Alice suffered because of her conservative values. At the height of her powers, she did venture into Manhattan's low-income neighborhoods and the immigration centers of Hoffman and Swinburne Islands but only as a temporary visitor. In 1897, she considered a professional career, but rejected it. And it was modern capitalism that ultimately destroyed her way of life during the Great Depression, leaving her defenseless as a result of these decisions. Alice Austins is a remarkable tale, and her home is a magical sight. but for a handful of people, both might have been lost to us. Today, if you look across Highland Boulevard, you'll see an apartment building with spectacular harbor views. The Austin House would most likely have been bulldozed for a similar development if not for the efforts of the Friends of the Alice Austin House. Historic Richmond Town has, likewise, safeguarded the Austin collection for nearly 75 years and thanks to curator Maxine Friedman, has made it fully accessible to the public. In the past two years, Historic Richmond Town and the Alice Austin House have hired dynamic young executive directors who have brought new energy ideas to both organizations. So don't be surprised if you hear a lot more about Alice Austin soon. I hope my own book will bring more New Yorkers and general visitors to Staten Island, but no need to wait, please go and visit now.
0: Thanks for listening to this episode of Sights and Sounds. Be sure to check out the rest of our podcast at gothamcenter.org and sign up to our mailing list to find out about other programming here at the Gotham Center for New York City History.